You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, It appears that CNN is growing headlines in a lab specifically designed to get my attention. Governor of Florida is violating the rule of holes. I'm a politics junkie, so I'm always interested in what the governor of Florida is up to. And the rule of holes? Ah, I was out there promoting the rule of holes long before Teen Vogue started posting tips for anal on the internet that didn't exist when I started laying down the law. The rule of holes. Gotta admit, I laughed. And not many headlines about the COVID-19 variant raging out of control in Florida, where new cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are all at or above peaks they hit in January of this year. Everything's up except testing. Tests are way down. Everyone's saying the numbers in Florida are higher now than during the peak of the pandemic. But if these new peaks are peaking higher than those peaks, aren't we in peak pandemic now? Anyway, not many headlines about COVID-19 raging out of control in Florida. Make me laugh. This one did. The Rule of Holes. That would be a great title for the Game of Thrones prequel HBO is working on that no one asked for. But rule of holes, singular? Yeah, no, no. There's always been more than one to quickly review. If it's your hole, rule number one, make sure it's clean. If it's someone else's hole, rule number one, eat it first. More rules for holes? Use lots of lube. Take it slow. Breathe. Stop if it hurts. Don't get so fucked up on drugs or alcohol that you can't tell when it hurts. Best to try toys first before taking a stab at Dick or before Dick takes a stab at you. And if you have more than one hole, don't go from back to front. And if you're sexually active, gay or bi man, get your hole on prep. Don't get prep in your hole. Prep is not available in suppository form, which seems like a missed opportunity. Consumer research failed. All right, text heavy at rescue. That is enough. Game of Thrones theme music. Now, to clarify, full disclosure. The rule of holes that CNN was referring to, what Dr. Jonathan Reiner brought up in an interview with Jim Acosta, is the rule that goes, when you're in a hole, stop digging. Florida's governor, Ron DeSantis, who wants to be president, has insisted that any public health measures to curb COVID are, and I'm quoting here, the most significant threat to freedom that we as a country have faced since the end of the Cold War. And with the Delta variant surging out of control in Florida, thanks to Florida's governor, he can't very well start imposing public health measures now, like requiring masks in schools, public health measures he's previously and hysterically described as a threat to freedom. That is the hole CNN was referring to, the one DeSantis is in, not the ones I obsess about for professional reasons. And I got to say, Any hole DeSantis is in? Not a hole I want anything to do with. The Daily Beast pointed out last week that the number of people who've died in Florida from COVID-19 since January of 2020 now exceeds, by a lot, DeSantis' margin of victory in 2018. Told you I was a politics junkie. DeSantis barely defeated his Dem challenger in 2018, winning by 32,000 votes out of 8 million cast. And as of now... 40,000 people in Florida 
have died in this pandemic. And it ain't over. COVID isn't done with Florida yet. Neither is Ron DeSantis. It's not just DeSantis voters who are dying, though, but Republicans are less likely to be vaccinated or wear masks. And so they are at greater risk, at greater risk of not just dying, but also greater risk of infecting others, a greater risk to others, and at greater risk of incubating new and potentially deadlier COVID variants. But to care about that, to care about those things, you got to care about other people. And if you care about other people, you're not a Republican. Well, let's not fool ourselves here about what DeSantis is doing down there in Florida. It's not a hole he's digging. It's a grave. All right, coming up on today's show, on today's Savage Lovecast, on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and on the Magnum, which you can subscribe to at savagelovecast.com. Twice as much show, no ads, more guests. Dr. Carol Hooven of Harvard University is here to talk about her new book, Testosterone, the story of the hormone that dominates and divides us. All that coming up on today's show. Hey, Dan. So I'll cut straight to the chase. I live with my best friend and I love her, but she has been dating this very terrible guy for about like three years now and... I mean, I just do not like him, and I assumed it was going to be a short-term sort of relationship, so I didn't think much of it, and now it's been a minute, and I just do not like being around him, and I'm considering leaving our living situation because I just truly hate being around him, and I kind of can't avoid being around him if he's dating my best friend and roommate, so... uh I wanted to know if I should be honest with my roommate about my reason for wanting to leave our living situation. Um, I just don't want to become like a controlling friend. I want to respect her decision to be with someone, even if he is like, you know, an alcoholic and just like kind of horrible to her. Like I, I know that telling her to leave him is, not really the way to get her to leave him, probably. So I just wanted to know, what do you think I should say in regards to this? And how honest should I be about how I feel about the guy she's seeing? I come down on the side of telling friends to leave shitty boyfriends, shitty alcoholic, drunk, assholey boyfriends. I come firmly down on that side. That's what friends are for. That can put a relationship under strain. That can put a friendship not just the romantic relationship you hope your friend ends, but it could put your friendship, that relationship, at risk because your friend, if she's still invested in this guy, invested in this relationship, hoping others aren't perceiving what she clearly may perceive to be a problem and hopes in time that she'll be able to cure him of because she's still in that stage of life where she thinks pussy is chemotherapy and it's going to make him all better – yeah, she may react defensively. It may your friendship may take a a real hit, but the price of your friendship right now is spending all this time with this asshole, not just in the periphery of your life because he's dating your best friend and you like to hang out with your best friend, but that you have to live with yourself. Yeah, you get to go. You get to move out. That's not controlling or what you're controlling there is your own life, your own circumstances. And you have a right to assert control over who is in your space, who you have to share space with. 
And if your friend perceives that as controlling, hey, I'm moving out because I can't stand your boyfriend, well, that's her problem. And if she perceives it that way or is likely to perceive it that way, what are you going to do? You're going to live with this guy for the rest of your life then? You're going to live with this guy for 10 more minutes or 10 more months? Where's your outer limit? Go to your friend. Tell her. Tell her he's an asshole. Tell her you love her. Tell her you want to see her and you want to hang out with her alone. Not with this guy. You're not signing up for the package deal. Sometimes we hear those things about the people we're dating and it opens our eyes to how toxic they are. Often we know exactly how toxic they are. We just sometimes are in denial about it or don't think it's as bad as it is because they are the frying pan and we are the frog. And hearing from a friend, a friend who's willing to risk our relationship, our friendship, something like what you're about to go say to your friend, as unpleasant as that might be to hear at that moment, as angry as we might be about hearing that as defensively as we might react in my experience, two months, three months, four months later, that same friend circles back to you and thanks you and is single. Hi, Dan. I am in the Pacific Northwest and I am asexual, non-binary. And my question has to do with how I should react to a non-consensual sexual incident with a loved one. So backstory here, my brother-in-law and I have known each other for a very long time. And for my sister's 21st birthday, my younger sister, we all agreed to go out and get super wasted. Well, he started talking to me. We started having a sort of heart to heart. My sister has some issues. And so we were just sort of talking to each other about that. And he started making sexual advances to me and I was too drunk to say anything essentially luckily nothing happened but I just want to know how to proceed from here with my sister's financial and sort of mental relationship issues I can't tell her I can't tell anybody in my family with the way that everything is going right now with COVID and they have a kid together and I just want to know what to do from here. It's difficult to think about how I can relate with my family who live in a different city from me when I can't tell them about what happened. You open with there was a non-consensual sexual incident that went down between you and your brother-in-law. And then when we get to that incident, when you unpack the events of the night, you also say nothing happened. So it seems by powers of inference that what happened here was you went out with your siblings and their partners with the intent of getting wasted. Always a bad idea. Let's not get wasted. Let's go have a few drinks. Let's drink in moderation, all things in moderation, including moderation. So maybe people get wasted every once in a while. But yeah, going out with the intent to get wasted, ah, not a fan. Y'all went out and got wasted, and I guess your brother-in-law made a pass at you in his wasted state that then you said no, maybe you reminded him that you were asexual, and he dropped it. I think if it had escalated from there, if this had involved touching or him not taking no for an answer, you would have included that in your call. So this non-consensual sexual incident was a pass at a drunk, 
guy made at you when you were wasted, all wasted, and that guy happens to be married to your sister, and your sister happens to be economically and perhaps emotionally dependent on him in a way that if you rolled this grenade into their relationship, and this seems to me to be a grenade full of confetti, not TNT, which is not to say this is funny or a party or cute in any way. I can understand how if you identify as asexual, this was really unwelcome, even if it wasn't your brother-in-law, but it's your brother-in-law makes it worse. But in a way, uh, not to minimize your lingering trauma and please go talk to a counselor in a way from where I'm sitting, nothing happened that can't be stuffed in a memory hole. Nothing happened here that couldn't be addressed by you just having a private conversation with your brother-in-law and saying, what the hell happened that night? And that was, I felt disrespected. You know that I'm asexual. Also, you're my sister's husband. And yeah, I want an apology and some sense from our conversation that this isn't something you do regularly. And this was perhaps induced by sexual deprivation during the pandemic because maybe my, you and my sister are under so much strain. You're not having sex or she's not interested in sex. And you're like, give me an explanation here that allows me to not feel as if this is your MO. And then you're going to have to make a judgment call after he unpacks this with you about whether you believe him or whether you think he's a terrible liar and your sister needs to get the fuck away from him. But yeah, in the future, when those siblings' birthdays roll around, maybe a bowling party, maybe everybody sits around and makes yarn God's eyes like it's the 70s again. Maybe you binge some show you all enjoyed and not everybody go out and get fucking wasted together. Because when large groups of people go out and get fucking wasted together, wasted things happen, which is no excuse. People should be held accountable for their actions even when they're wasted. But somebody making a pass at you, somebody saying huh, 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 when they're wasted and getting wasted rolls back people's inhibitions, the known known of the getting wasted phenomena, and then you shut that down and they respect that even in their wasted state. I don't want to say nothing happened because you sound upset, but I do want to say nothing much happened. And I think it would be inconsiderate ordering on cruel for you to take this to your family as if something much happened. Hey, Dan, I'm calling to hopefully contribute to the, uh, the phrase sexual conversation. I'm a cis hetero male married with two small kids. Six months ago, my wife came out to me as being very sexual. Uh, she didn't use that word, but your definition of fray describes her spot on. And it's been a struggle ever since she came out. Bit of background. My wife came from a, a a strict religious upbringing where sex was dirty. Uh, she's now internalized that as being that sex has no place in the family unit. She primarily enjoys sex when it's forbidden in some sense. She's never been in a sexual in a successful long-term relationship before meeting me. Uh, she was highly sexual when we met and before we, uh, before we had kids. Uh, I obviously had no idea about any of this when we first met, except for the highly sexual part, which was obviously lots of fun while it lasted. Since the disclosure, we tried opening opening it up, and it was a disaster. Just couldn't handle her fucking other guys and not me. This led to her breaking all of our open relationship rules, including fucking a guy without telling me, uh, with no condom, which was the A fucking number one rule. We closed it back up. This guy also happened to be cheating on his wife, and I felt compelled to disclose that to her, which didn't help matters with my wife. 
So now there's a ton of guilt on top of everything else. My wife clearly has issues she needs to work through. But acceptance of Frey as an orientation kind of implies that there's no problem and that we, meaning I, should just adjust to this new reality, which is a conundrum. I'm sorry, but I firmly believe that she is in the uh, emotionally stunted asshole camp. I don't want to break up my family, but I don't think I can stay married to this person that she is now. If it wasn't for the kids, I probably would have left her ass already. So I have two questions, one academic and one practical. Uh, the one is the one academic question is where do you draw the line between acceptance and non-acceptance? You're right. For the non-attached fray person, one course would be disclosed at the onset of each relationship. No one is hurt in that situation. I could accept that those people are out there and I would avoid them like the plague. But what about for the attached fray, such as my wife? I can accept that she is fray, but I'd have to leave her. I can't be with someone who's not into me sexually. Can she choose to try to change without minimizing the other phrase out there? The nice ones who are in no danger of hurting anyone. The second question, which is the more important question, and the obvious question is, assuming you're okay with non-acceptance, is this something that my wife can work on, and can, can I have hope that things will improve? You basically told the caller from a couple of episodes ago that there's no hope that things will get better with his own furry wife, that she's incapable of change, and so he has to live with it or GTFO. But the world is filled with emotionally stunted assholes. I'm probably one of them. Isn't that why God and her infinite wisdom created therapy? Ugh. There are doubtless people out there who just don't want to fuck their husbands or their wives or their long-term partners anymore and are now conveniently ducking behind the Frey label to make this about identity and respect. This is not to suggest that there aren't Frey sexuals out there. I remember writing columns 20 years ago where I said – that some people's sexualities work like this. If this pattern emerges in your relationship history where you're with somebody for three months or six months or a year and you lose all sexual interest in them, that maybe you need to pay attention to that. Maybe you need to know thyself and then not make long-term commitments that involve sexual exclusivity or sex at all and seek a companionate relationship or just be a serial monogamist and not promise things that you know that erotically, sexually, emotionally – you can't deliver. So in a sense, I've been talking about phrase sexuals forever. And of course, I believe that they exist. And I also believe that it is a convenient disguise for some people who just don't want to fuck the person they're with anymore. Maybe they never wanted to fuck the person they're with. That is a thing that happens. And it becomes this sacrosanct shit where you can't argue with them because this isn't about just – being an emotionally stunted asshole. This isn't just about being sexual and I'm not uh, conflating the two or equating the two. This isn't about uh, whether they're into you or not and how to make your sexual relationship work. Oh, this is about my identity. So, and we've seen this in the past where people are like, oh, my partner came out as poly and they're insisting that I'm somehow not respecting their sexual orientation or their sexual identity if I don't allow them to have other partners even though we made a monogamous commitment and they're treating discovering that they're poly as this trap that the monogamous person they made a monogamous commitment to unwittingly stumbled into 20 years ago or 10 years ago. Your wife's free sexuality, legitimate or not, isn't a bear trap that you put your leg into at the altar that you didn't realize or didn't snap shut until 10 years and two kids or whatever it is into your marriage. You are free to go for this reason. This speaks to a basic kind of fundamental sexual incompatibility 
and the way your wife has conducted herself, you know, ways that you disapprove of, you know, cheating and running around and breaking the rules that you guys established that would allow her to seek sex outside the relationship. Yeah, you don't have to fucking stick around for that. Maybe you could make this work if she were motivated to make this work, but then you guys would have to spend a lot of time in couples counseling really drilling down and you'd have to find a sex positive but I guess phrase skeptical or <laughs> realistic, um, you know, skepticism in all things, not just phrase sexuality, just like moderation in all things, not just moderation. You'd have to find somebody who brought a little skepticism to the table, who wasn't just one of those sex positive counselors who took at face value anything anybody said in counseling that could be motivated by something that's not about identity. That could be motivated, a self-serving rationalization. This could be that. But yeah, you're free to go. And frankly, from where I'm sitting, because of the rule breaking and because of the unknowability, your inability to ever know for sure whether your wife is legitimately phrasexual, whether your wife is hiding behind phrasexuality to rationalize away and make about identity, the fact that she just doesn't want to fuck you anymore or didn't want to fuck you ever – you don't have to stick around and work on that. You can go. And when someone's sexual or emotional or relationship growth over time winds up in a place that feels like it's about identity, people have it in their heads that you the only way to show love and support is to stay. Not true. You can love and support and leave someone. If you leave in a loving and supportive way, if you consciously uncouple, as somebody once said, in a way where you're trying to do right by each other, not lay waste to each other as the relationship ends. That can be a loving and supporting kind of leaving. And I think the sooner you do it, the sooner you leave, the likelier you are to achieve that kind of loving, supporting leaving. The longer you hang in there, I think the more toxic and high conflict this shit is going to get. Hey, Dan, and the tech savvy at Risk Youth. Um, I had a question about pluralization. There's a group of friends I have. Um, one of them identifies as they, them. Other one identifies as he, him. I guess it's two people. And I, if I see them together, like they're out, can I say, hey, they's, like for pluralizing, rather than he and they? Or, I, I mean, I don't, it's not that big of a deal, but I'm just kind of curious what the preferred nomenclature would be for that on what planet do people walk up to two somebodies that they know and greet them using pronouns like that i saw a couple of people i know on the street last night and i didn't walk up to them and they have standard issue off the rack pronouns i didn't walk up to them and say hey he she i said hey how are you doing hey y'all hey you guys whatever you i don't understand the problem here and the folks out there who are pushing uh, the singular they as, as a pronoun, which sure. Okay. I think it's a little confusing. I think we should all perhaps work on finding another universal non-gendered pronoun that isn't already in use in another way. But the folks out there pushing the singular, they aren't trying to do away with the plural they. So of course you could refer to these two as they, but it's a little insulting to refer to them as the they's as if they are their pronouns. You also have the option of using their names. Hey, Mike and Carol, how are you doing? You don't have to shift to how are they doing? Cause 
they're right there in front of you, which means they're use at that moment. You are making problems where problems do not exist. You are overthinking this. And there's a lot of overthinking of this topic going on right now. So don't fault you for overthinking this. A lot of people are being encouraged to believe that it is the right and proper and ally thing to do to really overthink this shit right now. Uh, but yeah, uh, you can take your foot off the overthinking gas and stop worrying about this. Hello, Dan, Nancy, and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am a 20, late 20s, uh, heteroflexible slash by male. And I recently read the book, The Woman on the Edge of Time by Marge Piercy, in which a utopian feminist future is visited by the protagonist. Uh, within that future, um, the pronouns per and person are used for all people. So you would say, I'm going to have a drink with per, P-E-R, or person had a drink with me last night to fill in for, for example, her or she. Um, I found this pronoun so simple and made a lot of sense and really got to the essence of just representing what we are as people. And I was wondering if you had ever heard per person as an idea for a kind of catch-all uh, non-binary pronoun. And if you think it has any legs. This is the first time someone has ever called into my show and identified as heteroflexible while sounding like they were heteroflexing at that very moment. Holy Christ. What a very sexy voice you have, I mean to say. All right. I think this is a genius idea. I'm headed out to get drinks with Per. This may be the gender neutral singular pronoun that we have been looking for while people are tossing out Z, Zer, the plural them. I really do think this gets to the heart of the matter. Per, it's a person. I'm having drinks with Per later. We ran into Susan last night and invited Per over for dinner tomorrow night. Like it really does kind of work. So props to the author of The Woman on the Edge of Time. It's genius. And it's been sitting right there in front of us all this time. Person is a non-gendered term for people. Person can stand in for man or woman as people stands in for all men, all women and all non-binary people and everybody in between. And I, yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Fully endorse this. I endorse this neo pronoun, which is not something I get to say every day. That said, as I sit here and think about it, per sounds like what? Sounds like her. So it'll be a little, we'll have to, it'll take us a little more time to get used to per for men as a singular pronoun. Ran into Mark last night, invited per over tonight for dinner. It does jar, but you know what? It's no more jarring the first few times you hear it than the singular form of they or them. And I think it would ultimately be easier to get used to and a whole lot less confusing. Hey, Dan. I'm calling because yesterday something sort of traumatic happened with my partner, um, and I'm just not really sure what to do. We've been dating for 11 and a half months, 
the first five months was closed, um, monogamous. And then the most recent five or so months, we had a conversation about opening. Yesterday morning, my partner told me that for the last month, he slept with a few people and not told me. And in one of those interactions, he was raped. And he just didn't, he didn't feel like he could tell me. Uh, I'm getting ready right now for my final ever exam, like my board exam, which is sort of like what my career has been leading to for the last 13, 14 years. So I felt like he didn't want to burden me. And so that was all complicated enough. But then he also revealed to me as the day went on that he has been sleeping with a guy, his neighbor, ever since we started dating. And it's not just a sexual thing. They love each other. And the other guy, who is not single, is in an ethically polyamorous relationship and his partner is aware, whereas I obviously was not consenting. Our open relationship rules, I guess, were that we would always communicate and that we weren't developing attachments with others. I'm just really confused and I'm afraid. Like, I'm not from America, but that's where I'm living to study. They don't have a very big support network and... I'm just not sure how to get through the next two weeks. It's Dan Savage returning your call. Hi. Hey, Dan. How are you? Uh, I'm really good. How are you? Um, I'm, uh, like, better. Um, so I just left a study group um, just that I was in, but I'm in a different room now. Um, yeah, I'm, like, I'm like slightly better. Um, when I left the message, I was, um, I guess, more panicked. Mm-hmm. Um, but now I'm kind of, I guess, in a place of greater acceptance. I'm I'm hoping that you're a whole lot more single now than you were when you called. No, I haven't broken up with him. I've kind of, um, I've deferred making any sort of big decision because the situation, like, it's really complicated. And is it though? Is it that complicated? I guess the. The prolonged lying, like for the duration, that's simple, and I can't understand it. But it's more complicated. Um, and the like, he's much younger than I am. I'm 29, and he was only 19 when I met him. So I was mm-hmm. like trying to be really careful with him. And um, the country that he's from, it's really hard being gay. Like, he can still be killed for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think his he has a lot of past trauma, and then. His most recent infidelities, not with the the guy that he's been with the whole time. That's a whole other thing. But in the more recent infidelities, him having been raped twice in that last month, um, it really complicates it for me as well because I love him, so I just want to support him through what he's going through right now. So okay, it's just really wait, wait. confusing. I'm just going to jump in here because we were talking about this earlier on the show. People get it in their heads that the only way to love and support is to stay. And it is possible to love, support, and leave someone. To end the relationship while continuing to provide that person with moral support, with your ear, with help lining up resources that he may need to claim asylum, to to see a therapist about the, the... the sexual assaults. And he is doing that stuff. I've, I've made sure, like I sort of said to him, I can't talk to you right now because it's too destabilizing and I just have to get through my final. Um, and I, is, I made sure that he had resources, which he does. 
Okay. Okay. Absolutely the right thing to do. You are a hundred percent in menschland there. And I'm sure there are some people out there because of the current discourse, as they say on age gap relationships who are not happy that you're 29 and this guy's 19. It is often the case that younger gay men get involved with slightly older. And I think 10 years is slightly in my opinion for my vast distance from both your ages. That seems slight to me. Uh, and yeah. those men can be good and stabilizing influences in their lives. A lot of 19 year old gay kids gravitate towards slightly older gay men because they need not just the relationship, not just the sex. And by gay kids, I mean adults, I mean over 18. They need the perspective. They need the education. They need <laughs> role models. And a lot of their peers may not be out yet. And if this person's an immigrant, they may not have any gay peers. Yeah. And so I'm just not going to, I'm just trying to get out in front of some people out there who are probably judging you already and thinking that this was an exploitative relationship. And I don't agree. I, I tried really, like, I, as I said, I, I've listened to your show for ages and I'm well aware of the campsite rule. Mm -hmm. He and I, although it doesn't sound like it based on what's happened, I've been really open and careful with him from the beginning. And like, I had only ever dated men older than me. Um, he was a complete change from my usual. Um, and at first we, we were just friends. So, um, this thing is so confusing to me because I've tried so hard to be really open and communicative with him and, and to go slow with him and to make sure that, okay. um, that this is what he wants. So, and and I, I don't doubt that you've done all those things. If you've been listening to my show forever, though, you should also know not just the campsite rule, but that a relationship can end and have been a success Yeah, that you guys may not be together forever, but having been with you may have been, even though he didn't treat you very well, may have been good for him to be loved like you loved him, supported like you supported him, for him to see that you were there even after he betrayed you in the ways that he's betrayed you, still able to access your feelings of love for him and support him and help him get the resources that he need and also then lay down the boundary you had to lay down to protect your career and the investment that you've made in your own career by saying, I can't see you for a couple weeks. And that, I'm so relieved you guys don't live together. Yeah, we don't. We're like five minutes from each other. Um, okay. But yeah, fortunately, we have space. Yeah. I can sometimes be a little bit too um, prescriptive with my advice. You got to end this relationship. You got to do it today. You got to do it now. You don't have to do anything I say. This is not binding arbitration. I, I, I know. And so I just want to encourage you, like, do what you're doing. Like, just put this on the back burner. Focus on your exams. I'm sorry I interrupted your study session to, like, bring this all to the front of your head. No, again. I feel guilty. No, I appreciate it. But two weeks from now, after your exams, end it. We actually had a holiday booked. I was going to go to Columbia with him the day after my exam. Um, so I, I've decided that that at least I really should not do. No. Um, but, yeah. No, don't do that. You're not obligated to follow through with that. Any travel plans that people in relationships that are less than a year old make are contingencies, are not carved in marble promises. They're not vows. And so... No, I know. Anyway, it's, yeah, I guess I just don't need to process because I I love him. Um, and so I'm st part of me is still just desperately searching for ways to make this right somehow um, and to give him the chance that he's asking for. But I just feel if it had just been the last month, that would be one thing. But the lying 
for the duration of the relationship and he did it so effectively even when we were happy and and when we were discussing openness and how the relationship would function like he had the opportunity to talk to me about polyamory or, or anything i i asked him but okay and he's 19 didn't. years old okay this is where i'm going to jump in and say and he's 19 years old yeah but for you to expect him to have those kinds of emotional tools or that kind of comfort, particularly with his cultural background, maybe in a, not a reasonable That's expectation true. on your part. That's true. You can give him another chance and still end the relationship. You can love, support, and leave him. Yeah. And that's what I would encourage you to do. Okay. It sounds like, uh, I'm sorry, it sounds like that's what you're already doing. Do what you're doing. Go back to your study group, nail these exams, end this relationship. I'll try. Okay. Thank you, Dan. Good luck. Hi, Dan. I'm a gay male in my 30s, and I'm calling with a question about an idea that you've talked about in your show sometimes, the idea of a come springer. And I'm kind of wondering about what you think about the importance of somebody having that kind of time period in their life. I came out in my mid-20s, and I've been in long-term relationships since then, but I've never really had much of an opportunity to have a slutty phase in my life. And during my most recent, you know, relationship with, which actually just ended, um, it was a relationship of four years. I found myself a lot of times kind of regretting not having more sexual experiences. And, and we were, you know, we were mon- uh, monogamous and a lot of times also found myself kind of wishing that we could open the relationship up a little bit. And that's kind of, you know, a, a big reason for why the, the relationship ended. But now that the relationship's over, I'm, I'm really wondering whether I made a mistake and I'm, I'm wondering how important it really is to have that period in your life where you kind of, you know, sleep around and, and whether that's something that most people should experience or need and and maybe what the difference is between feeling like you need something like that and feeling like you need an open relationship. So Rumspringa is this rite of passage for Amish kids. There's not a lot of drugs, alcohol, singing, dancing uh, in Amish communities. And after Amish kids get to be about, I think, 16, 17 years old, they're allowed to go on a Rumspringa. They can do whatever the fuck they want for a while. And then while they're out on their rum springer, they get to decide whether they want to commit to being Amish adults, to living by these strictures all their lives. And I've jokingly referred to the slutty phase a lot of gay men go through as their cum springers. The thing that's different is you don't go on your cum springer and then have a moment where you decide whether you're going to commit to the strictures of Gay life, because gay life can be pretty much a never-ending come springer if you want it to be. What you have to decide, there's like two things you have to do here. You're curious about having a slutty phase. You're curious about uh, getting out there, having more sexual experiences, uh, more sexual partners, and maybe living in the gay fast lane for a little bit, downloading those apps, having those crazy sexual experiences, hopefully in a safe and controlled way with people that you can trust and you have a good feeling about. The other question is, do you want to be in a monogamous relationship all your life? Or do you want to have all your life the same freedom to sometimes go a little crazy, go out there and have 
sex with someone else. And I think what you learned in that relationship you just got out of, the four-year relationship you just got out of, was maybe a closed monogamous relationship isn't for you. That doesn't mean you can't have a cum springer. It doesn't mean you can't have a slutty phase. But I don't want you to go into a cum springer thinking – if I just get out there and I have my slutty phase, then I'll be able to get serious about love and relationships because here from the future to tell you most gay male couples are not monogamous and there's research that shows that that may correlate. I'm just going to go out on a limb and say I think there's a causal relationship correlate very strongly with relationship stability in a way your failed relationship and the relationship ended not necessarily failed but the one you just got out of. Could have lasted perhaps. If you and your boyfriend had been able to pivot to opening the relationship up, you might still be in that relationship. So non-monogamy, openness could have saved that relationship. As it stands, your ex's unwillingness to open the relationship led to the demise of that relationship. So it, it's really two things I want you to think about. I mean, I affirm your desire to have your cum spring and to get out there, have your slutty phase, have some more experiences. What better time than now in your mid-30s and when you're single? Go for it. Have fun. Get on prep. Be safe. Stay away from math. Stay away from guys who do math. Don't waste your time on anyone who pressures you. Trust your gut. If someone makes you feel weird, get the fuck out of there. Have fun. And then you need to make a separate assessment, separate decision about what you want in any future committed relationship. And you might want monogamy after your slutty phase is over. You might want monogamy for a time or Ask yourself of what you really want out of a long-term committed relationship. Is intimacy, familiarity, stability, sex from that person, and the freedom to occasionally have a sexual adventure, to occasionally, even when you're in a long-term committed relationship, to have a little come springer and to allow your partner to have the same. Those are the gay relationships that I see last. Which is not to say there aren't gay male couples out there, some of them listening, some of them probably calling me right now to record an angry message who aren't monogamous, who don't do monogamy, quote unquote, successfully for 50 fucking years. They are out there. But come on, guys. You are the outliers. We're going to take a quick break from your calls to speak with Carol Hooven, PhD. She earned her PhD at Harvard studying sex differences in testosterone. And she's taught there ever since in the Department of Human Evolutionary Biology. She is the author of the terrific and I'm thinking probably pretty controversial new book, T, The Story of Testosterone, The Hormone That Dominates and Divides Us. Hey, Dr. Hooven, thank you so much for doing the show. Can I call you Carol? Of course you can, Dan. And thank you so much for having me on. Uh, it, it's my pleasure. I think most people know this, but before we get into it, what is testosterone and what does it do? Testosterone is a reproductive hormone and reproductive hormones also like estrogen primarily in women help animals reproduce. Ultimately what ultimately what they do is they convert the energy that we take into our bodies into offspring and to do that they direct our bodies to use that energy in ways that are reproductively beneficial and adaptive. So testosterone in men works in utero to develop the male reproductive system to maintain that system in adulthood. It shapes the brain in ways that enable male animals to use their reproductive systems uh, and their secondary set and to develop and then use their secondary sex characteristics they develop in puberty, like increased muscle mass. So testosterone will also shape the brain 
to kind of take advantage of sperm availability, which testosterone also promotes sperm production, take advantage of the availability of sperm and the, that larger body size and uh, muscle mass to typically compete for mates so they can use that reproductive system that testosterone helps to develop and maintain. So it coordinates the brain and the body in the service of reproduction. So typically not survival like some other hormones, but really focused on what males need to do to reproduce, which is typically compete for mates anyway, relative to what females have to do, which is stay healthy and have more body fat, for instance. So testosterone will convert energy into muscle, develop and maintain the reproductive system, and then shape the brain in ways that predispose male animals to use all of those things for reproduction. Um, I, I want to throw something at you that I've been saying on my show forever. Uh, it's a, a way that I sometimes describe men. Testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Would you say that's accurate or fair? So it's funny that you're asking me, an XX person with a vagina and very low testosterone. So I'm having to speculate, and I've been doing a lot of speculating about questions just like that. I wouldn't use the word monster. Um, I'd use something more positive. But yeah, once I've been teaching about hormones and researching hormones for about 20 years, and my focus, sort of my favorite hormone has always been testosterone, but it wasn't until I wrote this book that I really have come to appreciate from a, a bunch of different perspectives that the penis, uh, the importance of the, the penis for men and their desire to use it. And it's really, really different from what women experience. And what has happened oddly is that I've developed a lot of uh, compassion for men and the struggles, I think, around um, satisfying, trying to satisfy a sex drive that women don't understand and try to satisfy physical urges in a way that are sort of unfamiliar to and offensive also in many ways to women. Um, so yeah, I wouldn't say dick monster, maybe dick enthusiast or some other more positive word. <laughs> well, usually um, <laughs> when I say men are testosterone soaked dick monsters, I'm it's in the context of a call where a man has behaved badly, where a man has engaged in dickful thinking, as I like to call it, where their desire clouded yeah. their judgment or their perceptions of someone else's desire and whether it was reciprocal or not. And I'm not talking about sexual assault there. I'm just talking about guys misreading signals uh without yes. ill intent or malicious intent. And, and, and yes. the reason I bring this up, there's a, there's a lot in the book where, you know, you acknowledge that there has been a real push to deny differences between the sexes. And what I find so odd when I use testosterone soaked dick monsters is I can hear my generally liberal progressive listeners nodding in agreement. Yeah, men, testosterone soaked dick monsters. And it's testosterone that makes men men and testosterone maybe to blame. At the same time, many of my same listeners nod along when people describe gender as a social construct, gender expression as a spectrum, and increasingly insist there's no biological difference between males and females. And it's all socialization. And your book and you push back against that. 
Yeah. And I think that's really important. And you, I, I, what you just said was really interesting because it made me think of the, this real double standard about behavior when it comes to men. So we can hold these supposedly liberal, liberal progressive values about social constructions and the power of um, nature over nurture. And, but at the same time, we sort of give ourselves license to disparage men for who they are. And when you want to disparage a group of people for who they are, you invoke biological explanations for who they are. And that that contradiction seems to kind of be given license. Um, and that's just a huge mistake. I think it's really, really important to understand all the factors that shape behavior so that, you know, just there's the pure joy of understanding who we are and how we work. But then, of course, there's utility there. Um, if you want to solve any problems, you want to understand all the causes that contribute to that problem. And you don't want to overlook any really important facts. And uh, it's just confusing and unscientific uh, for people to constantly favor social cultural explanations over biological ones uh, when trying to kind of validate certain behaviors or promote certain social outcomes like sex equality or gay rights or trans rights. That's just, to me, not the right way to go. You want to use all the information that we have to understand the world and then fight for the causes that we believe in. So if you want to fight for gay rights, in my view, you know, it has nothing to do with whether or not being gay is caused by genes or, you know, something that happened in your environment. Uh, We should fight for gay rights regardless. And you don't want your social causes to be dependent on certain biological facts. Now, when you say, you know, we understand all the factors or we should understand or try to understand all the factors that shape behavior. First of all, I want, I want you to tell us how testosterone shapes behavior, but some people worry that if you say, well, testosterone at the levels that, that men have it in their systems predisposes people to, or say violence, that there's nothing that we can do about that or that it lets that's men off right. the hook. That's the concern that if you say, well, that's just how yep. men are because of testosterone, then we're saying men can't help it and men shouldn't be held to account or expected yeah. to do better. I mean, there, there's a pe- line I underlined in your book, understanding the forces that drive our priorities and behavior and how genes, hormones and environment interact helps to equip us to combat the expression of darker parts of our nature. And I think that's something that people who, listen to you, but don't fully listen to the argument you're making, miss. This isn't about a get-out-of-jail-free card for testosterone-soaked dick monsters, but it's about understanding what's, you know, most sexual violence, most violence violence, most intimate partner violence is men, men doing it to women. That's why my listeners nod along when I say testosterone-soaked dick monsters. Comes up a lot on a sex advice program. And yet, a lot of my listeners also believe that gender is completely a social construct, and I think those things are at war with each other. Right. And you, you talked about um, behavior and controlling, really, the, the question is, can men control behavior or can anyone control their behavior if it's, I hate even to use the word uh, caused here, but suppose it's caused by something in our nature or something biological, then people assume that means that the behavior is immutable, right? So there's how we are predisposed to behave, in other words, our natures, and then those are behavior, how we express our nature in a given environment. So to me, it's clear that for men, 
they have a nature that predisposes them relative to women to physical aggression, to want to have sex with a higher number of sexual partners, uh, to have a higher libido. But the extent to which people can express their natures and act on their natures via behavior is almost 100% dependent on the environment. So I think we can acknowledge that people are born with certain kinds of natures. Some people are really expressive. Some people, you know, are really shy. And there's plenty of evidence that that's in our nature. Uh, We know that like five-year-old kids have a predisposition to go running crazy around a restaurant, but they're not going to do that if it's not allowed or if they're going to get in big trouble for doing that or if their parents drilled it into their head that, you know, that's inappropriate. So the point is that we can have predispositions for certain behaviors, but the environment is the most important part of how we express those natures. So, and, and I just want to also suggest that suppose it is the patriarchy or suppose it is that you got dropped on your head when you were little that causes um, the increased aggression in physical aggression in males. Well, to me, that doesn't mean that the behavior is any easier to change than it would if the behavior was uh, more heavily influenced by, say, genes or hormones, right? So nature doesn't mean um, immutable, right? It's our environment that really shapes how we behave. So there's just no excuse for bad behavior and you don't need an excuse for your nature. You need an excuse to say for how you behave if you're behaving badly. And we know that laws and cultural norms uh, and values can really have a huge influence on uh, behavior. So there's no get out of free card. We should be very judgmental about You say nature doesn't mean immutable, but understanding nature can help us identify what needs muting. (laughs) <laughs> that is right. Yeah, I like that. I uh, yes, and everybody should be held account to account for their behavior, regardless of the cause. For the most part, you know, unless you have some very serious disorder where you actually have no control uh, for your behavior. But people need to be held to account. They're responsible for how they uh, behave. It's always dangerous when you make generalizations about 3.5 billion people, men, 3.5 billion people, women. There are going to be hundreds of millions of exceptions, and at least I think sexually, it's people who are exceptional, like women who are exceptionally horny, may be likelier to listen to a show like this, like mine. Um, but th- those things are broadly true. That you know, men may be horny or desire more sex partners. That doesn't mean that there aren't women out there who are just as or more horny than the average right. or above average male who desire well, of course, yeah. just as many sex partners as the average or. A, uh, above average male, but we sometimes point to those exceptions or outliers to argue that the general trend isn't true. The bell curve doesn't exist or there isn't a center to that bell curve, right? How does testosterone account for the, I guess I'm going to just say after reading your book, the fact that men are on average hornier and desire more sex partners than women. What role? What what switches genetically? Is testosterone flipping that gets us that result? Yeah. So that's a great question. I'm glad you said something about genetic switches because first of all, the differences in our natures and behavior are not caused uh, by large differences in our genes. We have the same DNA in every cell overall, except for the fact that Males in, in mammals have a Y chromosome 
in every cell and don't have the two X's. So there's differences in some gene dosages. But just for instance, the reason that men grow a beard is not because they have different genes. It's because testosterone changes the way that our genes are expressed. And it does that on thousands of genes and on uh, every chromosome. So there isn't a single switch that is flipped. And uh, it's just not that easy in humans. We do know in non-human animals that there is a little bit something more analogous to a uh, switch being flipped. And that's that testosterone increases the size of an area of the brain called the sexually dimorphic nucleus of the preoptic area. And when that uh, part of the brain in the hypothalamus is, it's called masculinized, then that, say, rodent will show male sexual behavior, like, you know, really pursue females and get into the mounting pose. And if there is low testosterone in that part of the brain is female size, then you will have an animal who behaves more like a typical female. So we actually don't know in humans what exact changes in the brain uh, testosterone is causing. But we have a lot of evidence from non-human animals and some indirect evidence uh, in humans. And we also have evidence from people who undergo gender transitions, which is really interesting. So we know that when people go from female to male levels of testosterone, one thing we see that's very powerful in terms of changes in psychology and behavior, and this is before the body changes and muscle mass increases and the voice deepens. Before that happens, there is something like a male puberty and these uh, trans men will describe living as females and having a relatively low sex drive and then entering a whole new world of sexuality that they had never experienced and a really you know, dramatically increased sex drive. And some people describe that they begin uh, objectifying the target of their sexual attraction, whether it be male or female. And that can be sort of horrifying to people who had previously lived as women and been objectified and found that offensive uh, once the testosterone goes up. That, that's so ironic because that, that so many trans, and, I, and that's not the first time I've heard this, This American Life famously did an episode with a, a trans man yeah. documenting that experience of a more intense and objectifying sexuality after going on testosterone so much of our discourse about deconstructing gender, smashing the binary, arguing that there's no difference between the male and female brain, it's all socialization has been driven by people who are either a part of or endorsing or allied to really this gender revolution of which transness is a, a big part. Yeah. And yet, yeah, that's right. these individual experiences of half of or more than half of perhaps now all trans people would seem to argue that you can't deconstruct gender, that the binary, as much as you might want to smash it, exists and will persist. Yeah, that's a tough contradiction. And I can see both sides of it. You know, so the evidence is clear that changing testosterone changes one's kind of sexual nature and sexual desires and even the experience of orgasm and kind of how intense it is. And, you know, if, whether it's fixated on the genitals or more of a whole body experience. So we know that there are these changes, but I can understand the incentive to, you know, if your goal is to gain acceptance for people who are gender diverse, you know, I can kind of understand that people might want to downplay the reality of biological differences because that would seem to support those 
kinds of agendas. And I think that's too bad because I think we should, again, you know, focus on the facts and fight for what we believe. And I don't think those things are incompatible. I think biology can be real. We can have male and female. But what we should do is fight for the acceptance of gender expression, regardless of your biology and respect for people with all kinds of differences. Uh, I don't see those as incompatible at all. And I I think that the strategy of kind of twisting the science is uh, just really headed in the wrong direction and part of a larger trend, which is, uh, yeah, not going in the right direction. At some level, in some basic fundamental way, are men and women just sexually incompatible? Should I just be glad every day that I'm gay? I think you probably should. Um, <laughs> are you happy? Are you happy? Are you having fun? I'm ecstatic that I'm gay. I'm 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 delighted uh, that I'm gay. It took me a while to get there. I got there pretty quick um, without a lot of help uh, forty years ago. But I sometimes feel like I'm I'm refereeing disputes between men and women that can never fully be reconciled because there is just a fundamental, basic biological incompatibility there around desire and, and sexual expression that is hardwired. And, and, and it, it feels weird for me to say that when it's my job to adjudicate these disputes and maybe I should just throw my hands up and walk away. I'm so glad you said that because honestly, that is part of why I wrote the book. It is my deep desire to understand what it is like to be a man and go through the world as a male person to not judge that and not uh, expect like people like my husband to change so much, but to really uh, understand what it's like for him and where he's coming from. And I think the more that we do that, the better our relationships will be because we will under, you know, have greater understanding of the people in our lives or, or our sexual partners if we're heterosexual. So yeah, I think there is a big conflict there, but I think a lot of women are just pissed off also at men for having a male sexual nature. And I think a lot of males are, men are frustrated with women for not being more accommodating. And to me, we need to learn more about each other and have better, more open conversations. Okay, let's get back to horny women, if we may. (laughs) Yes, yes, Uh, yes. I have said that women are just as horny as men. And maybe perhaps that isn't true. I, I hear all the time from straight guys who are jealous of gay guys and, and our sex lives because it's a lot easier to get a guy to go to bed with you. And I have said yep. to straight guys forever, if you want to live in a world where women behave more like gay men, you need to do something about sexual violence, about slut shaming. You need to do something. You need to wear that fucking condom. We need to have birth control methods that impose something on men, hormonal, perhaps birth yes. control methods for men. And if you could control for those things, I have said, and perhaps I need after reading your book and talking with you to take that back. If you could control for those things, women would be just as likely, just as horny, just as yeah, free like Samantha from sex in the city <laughs> as men. But perhaps that's not true. You know, there's this famous study years ago where they like approached people on college campuses. Yes. They sent attractive men up to women and attractive women up to men saying, you want to have sex right now. And the men were much, much likelier to say yes. Of course. Uh, of course. And the women were far less likely. And there was an attempt to kind of recreate that study, I believe, at a German university a few years ago. And they yeah. controlled for violence. They showed women pictures of men and said, you would have the opportunity. No one will know. No one will find out. There will be no violence. You will not be harmed. You will not get an STI. You will not get pregnant. And the women were almost as likely as the men to say yes to that. 
Yes. And that was held yes. up by people like me and others as evidence that yeah. if we could control for these things, women are just as horny as men. But you argue, yes. and I think... Well, there's horny, there's horny, and then there's desire for sexual variety. And I think those are two... It's important to keep those two things separate. Okay. So can, can you unpack the difference there then? Sure. So for, first of all, I want to say that I think you're... I don't think you're completely wrong. The evidence that we have is that everywhere around the globe in every single culture, and this is why I think, it, you know, part of why it's so powerful, but there is also patriarchy, of course, in most every single culture, um, males express a greater sexual, uh, greater libido and a greater desire for sexual variety. Okay. And I think the thought experiment that you're trying to do is interesting. And if you look at Scandinavia, <laughs> actually, um, we see a reduced sex difference in those variables because there is greater gender equality in Scandinavian countries. And we do see that there's more um, sexual freedom, say, expressed by women. It's not perfect, of course, and there's still double standards and slut shaming. So we don't know what would happen. And I do think that that sex difference would close uh, if there weren't the social stigma that we see almost everywhere. And there, but there are reasons for that um, stigma. And part of that is just males wanting to control female sexuality and females competing with other females for mates and denigrating uh, sex, certain kinds of sexual behavior. But for me, it is the consistency of the results in every single culture, evolutionary logic, and just looking at the behavior, sex differences in other animals, to some extent, that point towards this being something that is in our natures. And I would say also that it's estrogen, largely, that seems to motivate female, female sexual behavior, which is interesting, and uh, horniness. And I think that women, in some circumstances, can be have just as high a libido as men, but uh, it seems not to be as intense, not to be as persistent, and the desire for sexual variety just doesn't seem to be there at the same level. And there are really good evolutionary reasons for that to be true. I think it would be bizarre from an evolutionary point of view for females to seek the same number of mates as males on average, uh, because the reproductive benefits just aren't there. Right. A man can impregnate many, many, many women in a single year and a woman can only carry one child. He can, but most won't, you know, that's very unlikely, but on average, he will do better from increasing his number of mates um, relative to females who tend, you know, that could even uh, work against many women in terms of getting investment from their current mate. So, so, so I'm partially right because in a more egalitarian society like, like Sweden, uh, where there's yes. more control for less sexual violence, less slut shaming, more access to healthcare, including abortion, including birth control, the gap closed. Yeah, it doesn't close completely, and right. it's still, you know, relative. I would say relatively large, uh, but it does suggest that, you know, when we change these social standards and all of the things that you just mentioned to create greater equality for women, we will see you know, I don't want to say more male typical behavior, but just sort of female sexuality unleashed somewhat. So, so straight guys, straight guys should still fight for the world that I talked about. If they want women to be a little bit more like gay men, not just like gay men, but a little bit more like gay men, still fight for that world with less slut shaming, less sexual violence, yeah, more birth control, more access to abortion. Straight men don't, 
Yeah, sorry, yes. And I think straight men don't want that overall. You think they don't want the world with less sex? They do not want that. They might want that in their short-term sex partners, but they and they can get that, but they do not want that in their long-term partners. And most men want to be in a long-term relationship. Oh, I, they, oh wait, just, just to be clear, you don't mean straight men don't want a world that's yeah. safer and more just for women. They don't want oh, a world sorry, where sorry. their female partners have as much sex as, that's right. as gay men do. That's right. They kind of might like that double standard in some ways. So, Can you talk about, tell us about the Coolidge effect? Because I think that's relevant for my listenership. Sure. Um, so the Coolidge effect is something that has been most strongly demonstrated in non-human animals, particularly rodents. And there's some evidence for it, especially from responses to pornography uh, and just uh, desire for sexual variety in humans. So the Coolidge effect is when a male animal, typically a male animal, looks like he's sexually exhausted. So he will mate with the same female, take a rat. He will have intercourse with her and ejaculate several times, uh, say six or seven times. And then he is presented with that female again. And it looks like he's just not interested in her anymore. He's done. He's sexually exhausted. He can't ejaculate. You know, he can't get an erection. However, if you replace that female with a new female, then uh, he is perfectly capable of being sexually aroused and he runs around and pursues her and seems very sexually motivated. And along with this is a dopamine increase. So for animals to be able to have the motivation to, for male animals to uh, pursue a female sexually, he needs to have a dopamine increase. And it is testosterone that facilitates that dopamine increase, by the way. Uh, and then when he's exposed to this new female, the cool effect is this resumption of his sexual excitement and capacity that is also, it happens to be coupled with this uh, dopamine increase, which is really interesting. And we see this to some extent in humans where for males, um, if you measure how erect their penis is and use that as an index of their sexual interest and excitement while they're measuring pornography, when the actors change in a particular pornographic scene, males become more sexually aroused. So they seem to really respond positively to new actors, where if you look at a woman's sexual arousal, looking at uh, blood flow to the vagina, you tend not to see that same kind of response uh, to changing up the actors. There are different factors that increase female arousal, and familiarity can even be one of those factors. So there are novelty in terms of um, sexual, somebody's sexual object, say, seems to increase sexual excitement, mostly for men. So that's the Coolidge effect. It's not that women don't cheat, though. It's not that women aren't aroused by variety. But the studies do show that women are less likely to cheat than men, but women still cheat. Well, they are less likely to cheat, but they're also more likely to say that they're cheating because they're not getting their emotional needs met in the relationship. And it's not that they're necessarily just looking for sex like many men will do. So many men will cheat. You don't think that could be a rationalization? I'm cheating because my emotional needs weren't met. That's a justification that gets women off the hook. It's not that I failed. It's my partner failed. Therefore I am seeking variety. Yeah, it could be. It could be. There's all kinds of bias, uh, 
in reporting, and, but this is the consistent finding. I, I, um, I see that a lot in, in sex advice columns. I've seen that all. I've noticed that all my life. When a man cheats, he's a cad, and when a woman cheats, it's still his <laughs> fault. It's her, her partner's fault. He wasn't meeting her needs, and it does seem like an enormous double standard. Um, well, but either way, I think it's the both people's faults. Of course, if you're not getting your sexual needs met or your emotional needs met, right? There's both of those involve both partners. And of course, uh, they need to do a better job communicating. Carol, thank you so much for jumping on the phone and talking about your new book. The, the, the name of it again, T, the story of testosterone, the hormone that dominates and divides us. There, there's so much more I, 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 wish I, could, I, I wish I could talk with you about. I, I hope you'll come back on the show sometime. I would love to. I really found this conversa- conversation interesting and, and really enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay, Dan, I have something for you. I had sex today. It was awesome. But something happened that's happened a couple times before. I will get really relaxed and be orgasming so hard that I start to poop a little bit. And... It's not cute at all. It's fucking embarrassing and horrifying, honestly. The times that it's happened before, so it's happened, this is the third time, and the times it's happened before, I was kind of intoxicated, and I chalked it up to that. And luckily, those times, I was able to kind of figure out what was happening and like take care of it before they found out. It makes me feel real weird. And at the same time, it's kind of like funny because it's like they're literally fucking the shit out of me. And I don't know what to do because today was the first time it happened and I was like sober. And he's like it was he was like behind me when this was happening and he like saw it happen. He was like, hey, let's stop. And yeah, overall, he we like navigated that whole situation pretty well i thought and he doesn't seem to think i'm vile or anything but yeah i don't know is this a thing is this is there something wrong with me i'm not into scat stuff so i don't know what to do do i need to do like kegels for my butt any insight on this would be amazing i'm gonna send you uh to the Google, you're going to want to Google Savage Love, Brownie Points, my name, Dan Savage, and Debbie Herbenick, Dr. Debbie Herbenick from Indiana University. Because we covered this question at length. The woman wrote in, when she climaxed, she would sometimes shit. And it was making her so self-conscious, she couldn't relax and enjoy sex. And Debbie had tons of great advice. See a urogynecologist. There are interventions that have helped other women with this problem, and you're not alone. There are other women who have this problem. Orgasmic contractions, they kind of roll through because we were designed by committee our excretory systems, and sometimes they will engage while we are in the throes of climax. That is distressing. Maybe if we shit out of our wrists, we wouldn't have this problem, but we don't shit out of our wrists. We shit out of our assholes, which are hardwired into our erogenous zones in a way that's awesome at times, but sometimes distressing, as is your experience and your sex partner who recently, you know, you were crowning and there he was. 
But there are interventions that Dr. Debbie Herbetic uh, puts on the table. You can go see a urogynecologist, have an anal ultrasound, a colonoscopy. There are other tests. And they may suggest, the doctors may suggest, biofeedback, surgery, physical therapy, pelvic floor exercises, including those anal kegels, supplements, and so on. But my advice, and, and Dr. Hermanic agreed with my advice, is you may have to do like the anal gay boy power bottoms do. If you're going to have sex, if you're going to get fucked, clean out. Then you'll worry less. A little anal douching, making sure there's... Nothing set up there close to your rectum, close to all of the muscles that are going to engage during orgasmic contractions and maybe uh, result in, you know, you shitting during sex. So if you can't fix it after seeing the urogynecologist, if it continues to be a problem, borrow a page from the anal bower bottoms. Maybe even do this in the meantime while you work on fixing it, while you make that doctor's appointment. Get yourself a douche bulb clean out next time and you won't have to worry. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. Sex coach Adeline tweets for the Savage Lovecast caller asking how to tell her partner the best way to eat her out. I'm 100% with Dan Savage. Just tell your sex partners what you told Dan. Also, mutual masturbation helps. Show him how you get yourself off. Talk about pressure, speed, and motion. That works with his tongue too. Just Shannon tweets to the girl fag, hashtag girl fag, on today's Savage Lovecast, girl, you're queer as fuck. Welcome to the party. And finally, Unit of Kelvin tweets, in episode 722, you said to the caller who is only attracted to quote unquote Aryan men and who called herself a half breed, that maybe you're using half breed in the same way a POC might use the N word. Damn, not all POC are at liberty to use the N-word, only black people. It's important not to conflate the black experience with others who don't identify as black, especially when some POC participate in actions based in anti-blackness and rooted in white supremacy. Hashtag just saying. Unit of Kelvin, you are correct, of course. I misspoke and I apologize. The ironic or affectionate in-group subversive use of the N-word is for black people and black people only, not for all POC and certainly not for white people. Thank you for flagging that, Kelvin, so I could correct the record here. And thanks to everyone who posted about the Lovecast to your social media this week. We really, really appreciate it. And if you want me to read your tweet on next week's episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to use the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. This is a response call to the 41-year-old bi guy in episode 772 who called in about his failing marriage. I'm proud of you for recognizing that your and your wife's fighting is impacting your kids and that your kids need a different model of what marriage or relationship should look like. I'm proud of you for naming this now while they're still young instead of continuing to model a toxic relationship to your kids for decades. I am 39 years old and in therapy to unlearn the decades of toxic messages I've learned from my parents' marriage. I wish they would get divorced already, just like you're going to do. Hi, Dan. This is a call about episode 772, the woman whose boyfriend was making her a dirty little secret. I kind of think you missed something obvious here, and maybe it's just because I don't generally trust men these days, but what if he's lying? If he is, in fact, still dating this woman, then that makes a really good reason for him not to tell her about his new girlfriend. And if he is basically just telling, using the, the pressure of this little girl 
to tell her, oh, no, you, you can't – we can't tell anyone because if my ex-wife finds out, then – uh, she'll make me stop seeing my little girl. That's much better than saying, oh, uh, yeah, I'm still dating the woman who is the mother of my child as well, and, and you as well. So just, just a thought there that he might be lying, and it might be worth figuring that out too. Hi, Dan. This is a response call to the woman who couldn't tell her partner how she wants her pussy to be eaten. I think replaying the call back would be fine, but also just try texting it as a foreplay if you can't say it to his face. Like, uh, you know what turns me on? If you could lick my nipples this way or kiss my inner thighs this way, or I get super wet if you do this. Um, how about you? What turns you on? And the more specific, the better. I've never had a guy say to me, oh, that's too demanding. That's too much. It's actually the complete opposite. So if they're uncomfortable with that, drop them. There's a million other great guys out there who would love to be told how to eat your pussy. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for me or a comment about this week's show? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call the Lovecast at 206-302-2064 and leave a message. Or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Starting on September 9th, Hump is heading out on tour to theaters and cities throughout the U.S. and Canada with the Hump 2021 lineup. From last spring, if you watched it at home, this is your chance to watch it in a big crowd. If you didn't catch it at home when we were streaming earlier in the spring, this is your chance to see Hump 2021. Vaccines required at all live shows. And Hump's Greatest Hits Volume 4 starts streaming online on September 10th. Go to humpfilmfest.com to grab your tickets. And don't forget, the deadline for making a film for Hump is December 8th, which is right around the corner find out how to make one anyone can do it to find out how to get your film into hump 2022 go to humpfilmfest.com slash follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow dr hooven on twitter at hoovlet that's at h-o-o-v-l-e-t the savage love cast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy and i'll be back at you next week for an installment of the savage love cast thank you for downloading